Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. I've got a special guest today all the way from Ithaca, New York, joining us for his evening amongst juggling his children, two children, eight and five, family life, canoeing, um, all you need to know about the amazing Rusty Keeler is that he's one of our people um, involved in nature play and being an advocate of children for over 30 years. Um, some amazing books, including um, Natural Playscapes. Check it out online. You can order it via the Rusty Keeler website, Creating Outdoor Play Environments for the Soul. Now, that pretty much sums up why we have Rusty on today. Um, from going into the bio realm, Rusty Killer is a designer, an author, a speaker with a unique sensitivity to sight, sound, and experience of child- childhood. Um, 30 years of experience traveling the world, designing outdoor play environments and speaking about the benefits and beauty of saying yes to children and play. Thank you so much for joining us, Rusty, one of our kindred spirits from the other side of the world. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm Glad super um, yeah. pumped about sharing with our listeners all of your, well, in an hour, 45, we can't sum up all of your wisdom, but I look, in, look forward to um, exposing our listeners to the amazing work that you do, um, including your new book that's coming out. Um, we'd love to hear about your why and also a few little tips for our listeners in overcoming those hurdles that I'm sure you've had to overcome for years now. Um, as we start off, always, we start off with all of our guests. We ask them, where did they play as a child? So paint a picture for us. <laughs> sure. So for your listeners, I grew up in Ithaca, New York. And sometimes when people say they're from New York, you think the big city. But New York is also the state of New York. And there, then there's, there's downstate, which is the city, and then there's upstate which is the rest of the state. And that's basically cow farms and lakes and gorges and fields and uh, rural, real rural. And I grew up in that part. And I was lucky enough to kind of live on the outskirts of town and had fields behind my house. And those, those fields were the places that I explored, you know, all seasons, all seasons of the year. You know, it was summertime, you know, the glory of the green and, finding raspberries and, you know, eating, trying to find uh, cherry trees and the cherries before the birds got them, you know, yeah. it's kind of a race every year. Some year you had all the cherries you wanted. Other years you just came and there were like stems with the little pits still <laughs> stuck to them. And you're like, oh, uh, and then wintertime and building snow forts and yeah, just kind of seeing the land and being on the land and having that kind of connection and kind of the, the most magical moment that I had was kind of more a little young, early childhood. And it was in those same fields and maybe the fields were plowed and I found a spring 
like a, a pure spring. It was like a hole in the in the ground, yeah. like the size of a quarter, and just pure water bubbling out. And it was like this magical moment, like this crystal water coming from the earth. And you know, I I, I had some connection. Like I, in one sense, I didn't know what it was, but in the other sense, I knew exactly what it was. And it was just this kind of deep deep moment that's that's still with me. Was that? Yeah, would so you the, say that was your spark? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, when I go back to that, it is kind of a, it's like this hushed magic moment um, between, it felt like me and the universe right there with that water, pure water from the earth. Yeah. And reading your articles and your newsletter, um, all all the stuff we reference for um, Rusty's websites and newsletters and everything we'll put in the show notes as well as referencing the books. Um, But yeah, I love that strap line of, creating outdoor play environments for the soul. And I can hear that in your voice when you talk about that experience. Yeah, it's, it's the deep stuff. I think it's, you know, for me, finding those creeks and those, the the woods and the leaves and animals or, or bones left behind, you know, it's, it's kind of where you discover the world where, where I discover the world. And at the same time, you're discovering yourself in the world and I think that's what I want, like to kind of turn almost inside out to children now to create spaces that do that same thing, even within a fenced in area to still kind of create those this, the sacred space. I feel like, you know, spaces for children, environments for children are sacred spaces. And we as adults can, can create that, those spaces. 100%. And a bit of your backstory, how did you transform from finding that little spring into your adult life and finding yourself and creating these places to nourish the soul. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always, besides like liking to explore and being in the outdoors, I also like to draw and build stuff. And I ended up going into industrial design yep. uh, after for, in college and, you know, like product design and just kind of love that and using creativity to, you know, you know, invent and imagine you know, what wasn't there. And my first job out of school was doing playground equipment. Yeah. And I moved, I moved out west, you know, go west. In the United States, they said, go west and find yourself. So I guess I did. And I got a job at a playground manufacturing company um, called Big Toys. Yeah. And it actually was a really great time to get hired because they had just got bought by this big Danish company, Compan. Yeah. Um, who's interne- near international. And they wanted to do this whole line of new line of equipment and had it have it based be very based purely on children's play. Yeah. And so I came in there with my portfolio and, you know, kind of fresh, excited mind and ideas and um, just kind of stumbled into this and, you know, learning about play and learning about, you know, it's more than just running around blowing off steam. It's, you know, emotional, intellectual, social development as well as physical development and I, you know, I realized that I, I love play and then I love designing for play. Yeah. And, and the idea that as a designer, you can, you know, the more that you learn and then that you honor play, that then you can, you can think, oh, well, I can, I can be clever and design, for, you know, objects and events and elements that will stimulate some of those different kinds of play. Yeah. And we, so that, yeah. we associate um, like those more manufactured play elements as one category of play and then nature play and 
nature as another. So how did those worlds collide for you? Yeah. Um, so I, I love play and, and this idea of design for play. I, I lived in the Netherlands for a year. I, I moved right. over there and worked for another company that was owned by Compan in, in the Netherlands, Spielhout. And where I kind of, my eyes were opened, you know, and if you go, I mean, other countries, especially Europe and especially the Netherlands, incredible design yeah. and incredible open spaces and incredible art in public places and then natural play spaces. And I saw Steiner schools and almost every kindergarten I visited had berry bushes and like a scrubby hill and, you know, there was nature mixed in. And one time I remember I visited a, a park. I was going along with one of the designers who they got hired to kind of assess this park. And when we get there, we get out of the car and I start heading towards the equipment because it's a playground designer. I thought that's what we we're looking yeah. for. But no, they were looking at the entire park and all the edges and, and, and the, all the nuances and how children get in from all the different areas and alleys and what are the little ditches and where are the trees and how do dogs use the park and, and really looking at it suddenly as a whole environment. And suddenly that opened my eyes. I was thinking back to my own childhood, yeah. suddenly like, wait, the, the, that wasn't on equipment the whole time. I was in the special spaces where these natural areas. And then I was reading some books by Robin Moore, yep. American landscape designer, about uh, childhood's dom domain. And, and I think as a grad student, he was like working with kids and following them. They were walking him to and fro from school and showing them all the hotspots along the way. And again, it wasn't equipment. It was like the ditches. And yeah. here's where you can find the best frogs. And here's where you can hide from, you know, the neighbor's vicious dog or, you know, all these things. And suddenly it was like, oh, my gosh, all this stuff swimming in my head. And then the funny story is that then one day I was designing and one of my projects was to uh, design more play sculpture. This yeah. was, I'm still interested in this. Instead of just a, on a playground looking like a city street and how you can have sculpture kind of throughout the city and playful, you know, parks and sidewalks and all that stuff. And I was like, all right, I want to design sculpture that you can climb or you could sit underneath. Uh, it, it's shady. Uh, it changes in the seasons. It can you can be shelter from the rain. It grows over time. And then I realized I was trying to design a tree. <laughs> like, oh, oh yeah, okay. Well, why don't we just plant trees in our play environments? And, yeah, and, and yeah, really feeds into um, that wonderment of the experience that you know the bubbling brook coming out of that spring and then that wonderment of a tree. I had the same experience recently. I got asked to write an article for a book and they said, oh, can you just write about your one thing? If parents do this, this is from your area of expertise, um, your one thing. And I was racking my brain, racking my brain. I came up and I was thinking of like, all these elements, it's hard to explain because they're all linked together and one complements the next and the other one. And I was like, where am I going to start? end up trying to, I sat there for days trying to get this sorted and then I realized that I just need to write about climbing a tree because it offers all the framework that I was trying to explain in the context of that, like the accomplishment and, and that feeling of reaching your goal and then when you thought the possibilities were exhausted, you reached your goal and there's a whole new realm of possibilities that you thought were out of reach before. And then that self-fulfillment, that joy, um, 
that connection with nature and the reflex to care for it when you care f- it cares for you. Um, and from there, I was like, I just need to write, write about a tree and that's it. Mm-hmm. I spent mm-hmm. days trying to get all adult about it and um, I just need to get back to nature. That's it. That's it. Yeah, so I, I just suddenly the light bulb was off, went off and when I came back from Europe, <clears throat> I decided to stay on the East Coast and I was like, this is what play environment should be like. And um, yeah, it sort of became the mission. I saw my path there. It, it opened up and it just kind of started. Yeah. And, and how did you start once you got back? <laughs> yeah. Um, there... There, it was funny because you know in life how you you think you want to do something and then when do you when do you really do it and there was one time because I want to weave art into it all and I think I answered an ad in the paper about uh, ceramic tiles because I was going to do mosaics and she, uh, the lady was like oh okay yeah we have these tiles and, and so are you going to redo your bathroom and I said and there was like this moment of pause and like the the, the heavens opened up and I said <clears throat> you know my voice squeaks and I said no I. I'm an artist who designs natural playgrounds, artistic playgrounds. And I'm going to use these for the playground. And your direction, you, you set your intention and go. And, um, and right away, I just started talking it up. You know, in the beginning, I didn't have drawings. I didn't have pictures. I kind of just waved my arms about these ideas that you could do. And, and Ithaca, New York, it's a pretty, as they would say, a crunchy granola place. And these ideas resonated yeah. with a lot of people I talked to. And I just got, you know, my first job was with a Waldorf school. Yeah. And we did like earth berms. And I worked at Cornell University, had an early childhood center, and, and they liked it. And I did soundscape projects. And one thing kind of led to another. And the doors, the time was right, and people were ready and interested and excited. And that's, um, was that um, and then the application of releasing that book, the Nature Playscapes in Natural Playscapes, sorry, in two thousand and eight. So you've been trucking this mission for a long time now. Um, so what was the what was the intention behind that book, and why should people check it out? Because <laughs> I think they yeah, should. yeah. Um, thanks. Um, with the book, you know, in some ways it was sort of the book that I, I would have liked to see when I was first starting out. Um, it was kind of a just loaded with pictures as, you know, kind of a visual person. Um, and I just wanted like lots of pictures. Like what, what could these spaces look like and how can you weave in art and local materials and how, you know, in Ithaca there's some, some playground companies that do community built. Yeah techniques and so I was really inspired by that so how can you tap your own community the the people and the material resources and then it's loaded with designs and it was really the idea of like okay how can we can I, I inspire people just to think oh a playground it can be more than just the equipment yeah and and it can be a reflection of your community both the people and the skills and artists but then also the natural materials and the idea that a playground every playground should be different yeah. based on where it's located and with the people there and what's you know what's the climate and what are the plants what are the native plants and yeah trying to weave that in so that you can connect kids to their land to their landscape yeah. right there in their in the preschool or childcare thing what I see time and time again is like we try to overcomplicate creating a play environment a lot of the time and I can see your like your restraint in execution is phenomenal and your confidence in 
the child's taken the ownership is what I see within your designs and your confidence in the child's experience, not putting this adult thing first. So what tips do you have for people? They might have their early childhood center, um, very basic run of the mill. Where, where do they start on how to support their children at play? Yeah. Um, I mean, so for me, like my design has got less and less complicated, more and more simple over the years. Um, so I'm not about stuff really. It's, it's about opportunity and it's, it's not necessarily about equipment and you know, it, it, you can start really basic any, any yard, any budget. And I say like loose parts, loose materials, you know, I yeah. preach into the choir here, yeah. Just the idea of, and then that's kind of what the new book is about, is about how do we just say yes to children's play? You know, we can change our environments, and and I say just like plant stuff with wild abandon, yeah. um, and and plant things that are rugged or plant vegetables, kale. I show pictures of like kale forests. Yeah, people plant you know stuff that's safe, stuff that's rugged, sunflowers, overplant, um, mud kitchens. That's yeah. another one of the big things that people can do now in a mud kitchen basically is some sort of table or a flat surface, a bunch of beat up pots and pans and adults that are saying, yes, you can do what you want with this. Yeah. And maybe you have mud, maybe you have sand, maybe you have, yeah. So, so there's the, you can design and change the, the external environment. And then kind of the new book is then thinking, how do we change our internal environment Yeah. to say, to say yes more? Yeah. That's what I love about what you've done. You've had that exposure to this like post and platform type of scenario and um, this manufactured thing and all this very high level thinking. And as your application and evidence over time in viewing that child and reflecting on your own role in it, it's actually instead of being more refined and more you, it's become less you and more child. So that's I find that super intriguing because as a we see things moving the other way a lot of the time. It's more let's go bigger with our post and platform and big suspended walkways and big built structures and not really looking at that restraint. It drives me a bit crazy sometimes. It's like you've got a beautiful image design in in um, plan. You know, you see these award award-winning playgrounds, and it looks amazing in plan. But the minute you get down on level, you're like, "Who's this for?" <laughs> you know, the designer, mm -hmm. the designers mm -hmm. loving it for themselves. But where's the child? Where's the evidence? And that's why we both love loose parts. I think is because it gives that affordance to the child to have their imprint on the space and ownership. So we, you sorry, go on. Well, I was just gonna say then, as the designer with with the post and platform, like. It's the designer who had the fun being creative yeah. and then boom, there it is. And okay, it does what it was made to do, but kids can't change it and they can only play on it a certain way. And now what I'm mostly interested in is the loose environment, the open-ended environment where then children are the ones who they are having the fun with the designers. You don't even notice there's a designer. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's so messy or it's so wild or it's so open-ended or it's always changing over the over time. You don't even think that it was designed and it really wasn't because it's, you, you're handing the keys over to the kids. Yeah. That's awesome. And um, you mentioned your motivation behind that, uh, the new book adventures into risk, risky play. What is your yes? 
tell me, tell us how that came to be. Yeah. So, so, so from, uh, traditional playground equipment to the natural playscapes. Yeah. And then all the time I've been interested in adventure playgrounds. Yeah. Um, and the adventure playground, when I say that, I think of these, those loose part, you know, extravaganzas kind of after World War II, seem in Europe and Japan, yeah. um, kids sawing and hammering and building all sorts of like wild structures. And um, I had gone on a bunch of study tours in yeah. Berlin and traveled around and, you know, Sweden, Norway, England, and get to see these things. And if you've seen these, it's, it's like the ultimate kind of kid space. Yeah, because I'll put it's... some notes in the show notes so people can just click the link. I'll put the one in of the Berkeley because I've been to that one as well. Great, fantastic. The Berkeley Adventure yeah. Play Zone, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really is like a haven for kids because they know that they can do what they want to do. And yeah. There's loose materials. There's enough enough structure and things to do that are fantastic. But then there's also the play workers. There's professional adults there yeah. that aren't there to lead lead the play, but they're there to support the play and protect the play and prolong the play. Yeah. And so, so that's their role. It's just to kind of be there. And so I was always inspired by that. And, you know, in the United States, we used to have them back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, and then they died down. And then, you know, you hear in Europe they were going on and, I was like, wait, people would visit and they'd tell us about it. I'm like, wait, the government pays for these things? And there was always this myth that in the United States, it was you know too much of a litigious society or we couldn't do that because of you know, you know lawsuits or injuries and insurance and blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I don't like the idea of basing our lives on fear, right? And, and not doing things that we believe in. And especially when it has to do with children and Although that stuff clogs us down and, it, and it, it's nerve wracking, you know, organizations or schools or, you know, they don't want to get sued and they got enough stuff going on. But I was like, I, damn it, I want to I want to start I want to help start an adventure playground. This we need it yeah. you know, in the United States. Like we need it like children's lives are clamped down enough and they they're too busy and they're restricted and they, you know, too many adult led things. We need some spaces where they can where they can do what they want to do and that, that we can show that it can get done, that, it, that it's not that it's litigious. It's not that it's, you know, kids are going to get hurt all the time. So I got to connect in Ithaca where I live with uh, a couple different organizations to do this hands-on nature anarchy zone. Yeah. At the Ithaca, I love Ithaca the name, Children's the anarchy Garden. zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's a, an adventure playground-inspired place at this children's garden that has hills and mud and trees to climb and straw bales and a storage shed filled with loose materials and shovels and rope and boards and tires and you know the whole the whole deal and it's been going for eight years since 2012 and then we kind of started a north america adventure adventure play uh curious um and so now there's adventure playgrounds kind of that have cropped up all over north america and there's more and more happening and yeah, so so for me that was kind of my move into more of the adventure play and then the yeah. risky play, and then just thinking about then that relationship that that not so much that the kids have with risky play, but more that the adults have yeah. with risky play, with the idea of risky play. What do you think? And then the that's kind of the memory, yeah. What do you think's been the shift for um, the uptake of people accepting um, the adventure play movement that's sprouting up across there? 
because the the stigma is that oh no parents don't want it they think it's too risky but when you actually offer it you see people do want this for their children it's true it's true and uh, you know I, I think a lot is like a kind of a backlash from I think more restricted lives and children not being able to kind of explore and have that kind of freedom. And when people think back maybe to their own childhood, people of a certain generation, and maybe they were free rangey, you know, like, like I was. And, um, but then just realizing that children aren't having those kind of opportunities and just saying, and it, it, everything happened little by little, like, Oh, school's taking away more recess, or you can't run at recess, or everybody's in an after-school program, so there's not just kind of free play, and everyone's in a summer program or a camp, so there's not just like that kind of freedom to play that people had a couple generations ago, and it was just like one little thing, you know, the way everything happens often of like, it's not planned, nobody's evil grand plan, but little by little, play just got restricted, and I think there's just enough people that are recognizing it and just say, hey, this enough is enough. We got to put the brakes on. We got to move the needle. We got to, we need the pendulum to swing back to normalcy, you know, and let, let children play and, and support that kind of play and, and talk about it. Yeah. And um, so what I hear there is like you're trying to inspire the, the internal yes. Yes. Um, talk to me a bit about but, that, the, your mission to inspire adults to ask themselves, what is their yes? What is your yes? What is your yes? Yeah. So, I mean, that's it. So it's tough, whether you're a caregiver, a teacher or a parent, you know, you see a child doing something, right? A little bit risky or anything. And, you know, we're, we're creative, we have big brains, we're creative people or beings, and we can imagine, I mean, this is kind of how we survive as a species, I guess, we can imagine the bad thing that could happen to that kid. He's balancing on a log, or she's holding a stick, and immediately, boom, we see all the bad things that could happen. So we, our first impulse, we, we step forward, and we say, no, stop, and then put that stick down, get off that log, and then nothing bad happens, right? Because those things didn't, and then we can feel, you know, we feel good. We feel relieved or it's a good thing. We did our job. Okay, nothing bad happened. But that's another one of those pendulums that have, you know, things that have gotten, the needles gotten pushed because we've done so much of that. Now we have to, and I think we take a lot of the, our cues now from this playwork, the adventure playground playwork model of where the first impulse isn't to step forward and, and say, stop. We're trying to relearn, rethink, uh, regulate ourselves and, and say that the first impulse knee-jerk reaction should now be to take a step back. Yeah. So you see a kid on a log, take a step back or just cover your mouth and count one, one thousand, two, and just observe, right? Just first watch what's going on. Now, a kid could be out of control or they might be ready to stab somebody and all that, you know, that's our job is to kind of recognize that. But it's also our job now to take some deep breaths, relax, chill out, watch what's going on. And when you do that much more, more often our ch children are fine, right? Children are, they're, they're involved. They don't want to get hurt. They don't really want to hurt other people. 
every, every scenario is different. Every child is different. Every environment's different. But I think the book is really just trying to do that, trying to look at things that the children really need to be able to do. And we talk about trees like climb trees. Should children be able to climb trees? Yes. Should they be able to run around barefoot? Yes. Should they be able to, you know, there's a whole list of things that go in the book. But so we want to support play. And, and risky play is important because it's children doing things they've never done before, trying out experiences, trying out their bodies, trying out their, you know, their bravery. And, and it's really about children learning to say yes or no about stuff, as opposed to just the adult being the one who says yes or no. And I, that's one of the big things, I think, of, of you know, that we, we ultimately want kids to be safe in the long run. And so they need to learn that. And if it's just us doing the, the regulating them, they don't get to kind of work that muscle, that part of their brain that, as I say in the book, the good old prefrontal cortex yeah. that, that learns that stuff that learns how to, how to deal with risk and everything. And, and that, that will make kids safer in the long run, more resilient in the long run. And that's what we want in the long run. And as well as like in the short term, great experiences and, and trusting children and maybe more fun for the adult too to watch the great play that happens. Yeah, that's um, but it, but it's tough. something that's overlooked Challenge. quite a bit is that um, the adults experience in that play as well. You know, it's not fun for an adult to be there saying, don't do that, be careful, get down. But like, yeah. all right, Give yourself yes and the permission to go, okay, well, how can I take ownership of this space and not by being dominant, ownership over my, like you said, that power of the pause. Like take that breath, have that ownership in yourself and the confidence as a parent to say, hey, my role is to be confident, not for them, but for me be confident for me i was saying recently as i think it's our roles kind of like we're trying to drag children through these experiences of life so they can get this learning instead of standing behind them and supporting them from behind and you just articulated that need of risk so beautifully and as my intro said all you need to know about (laughs) rusty is like he's one of these people that so thank you so much um the cage of boundaries understanding your cage of boundaries can you speak to that phrase for me and our listeners yeah uh the cage of boundaries you know that's actually something that the publisher came up with and i'm kind of i'm kind of trying to i'm 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 meditating on it myself yeah but i think i think it's that idea that because we say no or because we see all the bad things, right? When we only see the, the risk of what could happen on that log or with that stick or uh, in that mud puddle, um, that does feel like a cage. And, and for children, that will feel like a cage because they won't have freedom just to explore. But one of the big things then, what, what I'm trying to do in the book and then what people are doing in the playwork world and all that kind of stuff is, and, and forest schools and all that. So I took a lot of inspiration from all these places, nature kindergartens and outdoor schools. And it's, it's when you, you see kids doing risky things, you don't want to ignore what could happen, right? Okay, it, something bad could happen. But 
Now we want to also look at what are the positive things that could happen, yeah. right? So what, what on that log, if you're balancing on that log, okay, what could happen? You could, you know, with these creative big brains, we're like, oh, you could get scratched, you could break your, you could poke your eye out, you could break your ankle, all that stuff. Okay, let's, we'll, let's, we can make a chart and we'll actually put those risks down. But then in another column, we'll put the benefits. Yeah. And this is what I want educators to do, parents to do, early childhood. You start doing the benefits, and the benefits could be, oh, they're balancing, and it's physical, or there's confidence, or self-esteem, or they're being creative with something. And, and suddenly you start looking at the risks and the benefits. And then yeah. once you do that, suddenly it's like, oh, well, there's then you, then you decide. Then you're given a choice. Okay, do the risks outweigh the benefits? The benefits outweigh the risks? And then are the ways that we can manage it? That's like the third little bit of like, yeah. okay, what can you do to make that log or that stick or this hill or that tunnel less likely to hurt somebody? Yeah. And I think that's it. Once you enter, once you enter in thinking about the benefits, because it's not just saying, oh, you could get hurt, so you don't do that. We could get hurt, but then what? What are the great things that could happen? Yeah. And then. And then you balance it. And, and so you you can do that formally on paper or you what they call dynamic risk-benefit analysis in yeah. the moment with the kid bouncing on the log and with everything that you know with your child or that your kid. And so I think that's it. It's like it, it's hard. All this stuff is super hard because we don't want kids hurt. And if you're watching other kids, you're in, they're in your care. You want to be sure that nobody, everyone's going home, you know, mostly safe and sound. But ultimately we want kids to to grow into becoming safe and sound and resilient and creative and, and knowing that they can do things. Yeah. And for your listeners, you don't have to think, Oh, I'm going to put out hammers and saws and, you know, rusty nails and let them just go for it or chainsaws, all that kind of stuff. You start small. Yeah. Everything is starting small, whether it's, whether it's designing your natural playscape. You know, the saying of dream big, start small, yeah. and never stop. But the same goes for changing your own internal environment. You know, like you dream big. It's like you say, oh, we want kids to have the freedom to climb trees and to balance on logs and to, you know, to, to, to take risks, but start small. Yeah. Like what's the, what's the, what's the, if we're just trying to move that needle from no, no, no to just a little bit of yes just start small because because the adult needs practice saying yes to something and seeing the catastrophe did not happen. And then once we see that a little by little, we're like, oh, OK, oh, well, maybe I could say yes to a little more. or Maybe I could say yes to a little more. And, and then pretty soon, Lucas, you might be letting children go up slides on the playground. <laughs> Gosh. Gosh, but it's funny, you know, what are those, what are those things that we say yes to and no to? And then what are the rules that have come down through the ages that we think we have to enforce? And yeah, it's all a lot of, a lot of stuff. Yeah. So when it comes to overcoming that, um, cause obviously when it comes to design and play, there's a lot of compliance based thinking. Um, would you apply your like risk benefit assessment over that? And then come in and apply that more regulated type of spec. Yes, yeah. I, 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 another big point. So there's like playground regulations that yeah. you follow if you have, you know, if you have equipment and all that. And natural playscapes can 
nicely fit and did all the playground regulations and fall zones and head entrapments, pinch points, protrusions, all that kind of stuff. But then just a little bit more conceptually, we differentiate between risk and hazard. Yeah. People have different ways of putting it, but I kind of like that. A risk being something that a a child, uh, something dangerous, but that they see that it's dangerous and then they can choose to do it or not do it. Yeah. And I keep going back to this fallen log. They can decide they want to try bouncing on that log. They know if they fall, they'll, they could get hurt, but they can see what's there. Whereas a hazard is something that really we need to watch out for. It's something that, that could hurt a child that they don't see. Yeah. So say that fallen log was over some broken glass or a chunk of rebar or something yeah. bad. So they're not choosing to fall on that and get hurt. So it's up to us as adults to remove the hazards to be to be mindful and the more we want children to take risks the more we have to be on the ball right we have to be on our game to like okay let's get rid of these hazards let's be vigilant but we don't have to step in but we still have to keep our eye on things yeah um and then there's that idea of the risk benefit analysis and and with the book i i talk to a lot of um licensors early childhood licensors and regulators. And I got invited to do a risky play talk at like the national regulatory administrators uh, conference. They were very nice people. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't monsters at all. They, they love care about kids. And, uh, and, but I found time and time again, especially at the top level down, they all agree with this. They all agree that children need opportunities to connect, have risk. Yeah. To t- do risky play, and and they they and they they're having their that message go down through trickle down to their people and the people on the ground, but they say that what helps the most is doing those kind of risk benefit analysis, because for people who are regulators, when they might walk into a, a playground space, and they they if they were trained just to look at playground equipment, and if there's a boulder there or a chunk of log. That used to be like that's a hazard. Yeah. But we're we're flipping everything. And when I say it was in the book, we're we're the world is upside down, and now we're trying to write it. And part of that is putting this stuff in. But you, you have to show that you're doing it mindfully. That yeah. you're like, yes, there's a rock there, and we put it there, and we we put it there purposefully, and we and we sighted it purposefully over there on the edge where it's not going to be run into it's not near swings it's not near the soccer game and we've done risk benefit analysis and we've so that then you can show your licensor you can show your regulator if you're child care you can show the parents yeah hey, we thought this stuff through so that you can show oh it's not that we didn't realize we did this stuff 100 percent. you know and, and that yeah and that's what i mean regulators they have a tough job because they have to they have to look at the site and then look at the the operator and think, okay, did this person do this on purpose or did they just not realize that there's crazy risky things going yeah, on? Yeah, 100%. And I think being a part of an advocate for the childhood experience is sharing this knowledge. Like we have the education department come in and we build a play environment with boulders and rocks and all sorts. And it's very front foot. I was like, here's your regulation quick reference guide. Here's our risk benefit assessment. Here's why we did it. This is a transition plan. This is the supervision plan. This is this. And they're like, you've really thought about that, these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Even when it came to putting a fire pit in the middle of a playground, they were like, fire pit? Talk to me about that. I went, here's, <laughs> here's the data. Here's the plan. Here's this, 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 and this. And they went, okay, um, tell me about that rock. 
<laughs> but it's our it. it's our responsibility. We're in, we're blessed to be in this situation to support children. So I love this. Like in Australia, we've referred to early childhood educators as educators, and I'm constantly trying to say just not of children. Like we have got to educate the families. We got to educate the parents, the mm-hmm. the the department about this stuff as well because it's like more people like you out there sharing this message in an articulate way we've got to be the hand the baton on and be like here let's make that impact um one of the things we need to overcome when it comes to a um, natural learning environment um is the mess you know the the (laughs) chaos of play um and that's a real concern of like people i see it's it's like we're trying to be the bridge. Like nature is nature, it wins. But when it comes to recreating nature, we're the bridge between that relationship of not having it with nature and then being the bridge to nature. Um, but with nature comes chaos, comes mess. How do you overcome that people's concern for mess and chaos? <laughs> or anarchy uh, as you call it. That's right, that's right. Well, like so many things in life, it's all on a spectrum, right? And everybody who has a play space, uh, they're somewhere on the messy spectrum. Then from one end is like neat and tidy and, you know, magic garden, you know, the kind of romantic yeah. ideas. Or then on the other end, you have like the craziest anarchy zone adventure playground that's filled with plastic junk and all that kind of stuff. And I think we're all somewhere in between there. And it, for me, it's, it's going to be interesting because my first book was – it's, it's green, it's nature play, it's it's kind of the beauty, and I think it captured people's like hearts and yeah. nostalgic imaginations. But this one, it's junky, it's muddy, it's messy, and I'm trying to push people's buttons a little bit or get them thinking about it and to see where kind of they are on that on that continuum. And and the good thing is that everybody can create whatever kind of playscape they feel comfortable with. Kind of I would say that the concepts are deeper than whatever it looks like, how messy it looks. And if you just want natural stuff in your environment, you could have, you know, I, I still think the children should have loose materials and um, stuff to build with and change and dig and all that kind of stuff. But you could say, we're only having natural loose materials. So we're yeah. cutting tree cookies and having straw bales and that kind of stuff. Or you're saying, you know, we can go further down the, the junk the junk end of things. Um, and, and maybe, well, okay. There's, I, I guess I would say mess and beauty is that, that idea of the, the eye of the beholder. Right. Yeah. And that there's a saying with adventure playgrounds that they ain't pretty, but they're beautiful. Yeah. And when you see children that are engaged deeply in play and they're creative and they feel free and they're, they're growing and they're involved, that's beautiful. Yeah. And so I would say that that's kind of the beauty, at, at least for me, that's the kind of beauty that I'm going for. It, it may be messy. It may be ugly, but that's, that's the real heart and that's the beauty and that's the spirit, I think, of all this, yeah. all this stuff. And why do you love loose paths? Endless possibilities. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No limit. No limit. That's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, the other book we've got to mention is The Season of Play, which is available as well. 
um, those right. natural That's environments, right. like all those amazing pictures of what's going on and the theory in action. And that's what I think your value is in these these new books, and especially with the loose parts. You've really been transparent in your journey from, you know, wanting that nature, soul, holistic and going like the with your evolution, the ideas change and you're not steadfast in someone that's come from manufacturing to go into nature play to go into loose parts is just a phenomenal journey and just adds more value to the people absorbing your content um so when it comes to the season of play natural environments of wonder can you tell our listeners about that one sure um that started off just as a kind of little photo project i had set for myself after the first book uh, you know i like to take pictures most of the pictures in the book are stuff that i took and um that was, I kind of wanted to look at natural playscapes all seasons and, yeah. and think if, if the first book was kind of like, all right, what is a natural playscape and how can you design one? The seasons of playbook is like, well, what goes on there? Yeah. And a lot of times with natural playscapes, you know, we see pictures in the green glory of summer. Yeah. But especially in upstate New York, it ain't green and glorious all yeah. year long. You know, it gets gray and brown and and cold and snowy and slushy and messy. And but we, the ultimately the best in play environments are, are environments that are interesting all year long. And we want kids to be outside in all weather, no bad weather, just bad clothing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, let's. Uh, there were three three early childhood centers, home base in Ithaca, New York, where I, where I live. And I thought, all right, I'm just going to visit them. I'll just drop in, you know, I had relationships. I knew the owners and I'll just drop in and, and take pictures of what's going on there. And it was beautiful and amazing. And I got, and, and each center was a little bit different. There was one that was like a, a, on the spectrum, on the continuum, kind of a nice, tidy, gardeny. But they said yes to kids and they let stuff happen. And I was there in snow and I was there in crunching leaves in autumn and springtime and apples in the fall crunching and eating. And um, and then the other one was like a total messy one, like no grass and, you know, rubble and crazy weird plants. And then the other one was like a farm preschool with chickens and goats and cats and all sorts of craziness going on. Yeah. So that's kind of like a, a year, kind of a year in the life almost of a, of a natural place game and, and kind of from the children's perspective too. Yeah. Like what, what do you do there? Yeah. So beautiful. Um, what excites you most about what's happening in your play evolution and understanding of it moving forward for you? Of my, for me personally? Yeah. Well, you know, actually what I've been working on lately is kind of play from not just looking at like an individual play space, uh, but how play a whole city, kind of yeah. looking at it from a, a child-friendly city, a playful city, and how you can look at neighborhoods and how you can, you know, stand up for social justice and, and children's right to play. Thanks again to the amazing and inspiring Rusty Keeler for sharing his wisdom and years and years of experience with us. I um, hope you uh, got so as much out of it as I did. Um, all the references to our conversation you'll find in the show notes, books, uh, websites. And in addition to that, we will be ordering in bulk that amazing book um, titled Adventures into Risk and Play. What is your yes by Rusty? And we'll be doing a, a bit of a giveaway competition. So share this podcast, leave a like, 
rate it, and we'll be sending a few mystery books out to some listeners. Thanks so much, and I look forward to you joining us again soon on a Play It Forward Worthy podcast.